Father, myself, I am so glad that our Father in heaven is perfect. We lack nothing in him. And he loves us perfectly in every way. We just got to love him and we got to let him love us. Okay. All right. Here we go. Out of Second Peter's, we continue our series in Peter. Um, I got to get my mind right here. Oh, verse 16. 2 Peter, verse 16, chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we also have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God's add a blessing to His Word this morning. Please be seated. Last week, I, uh, uh, for those that were here, and if, you, if you're unable to be here, it's recorded, and you can certainly go to our website and, and uh, see it. But last week, I spoke about the greatest threat to the church today is an apathetic faith, a faith which is dull and lifeless and without vitality. I spoke about how it has a dramatic effect on the believer, but also has a dramatic effect on the church as well. This morning, I want to build on the responsibility in maturing in our faith by giving us confidence in God's Word. Within last week's message, Peter admonishes us to add to our faith seven qualities that ensure that we are to be diligent in our faith so that we would never fall nor be ineffective. Additionally, he wrote that he will always remind us, always stir us up, for his time was short. Now, continuing now, what Peter wants to provide confidence in what he was saying. He wants to provide encouragement by providing us within our text this morning a certainty in believing and trusting in the communication that he's providing by way of his epistle and by way of the other disciples' epistles and gospels because it is the inspired Word of God. And he does this by providing three proofs that give us confidence. Now, before we get into those three proofs that give us confidence in God's Word from the text this morning, let me ask you a question. How much confidence do you have in God's Word? Odd question, Sunday fellowship. How much confidence do we have? This morning in Sunday school class, we talked about not being anxious. 
but placing our faith in Christ. And sure, we could say, you know, I put my faith fully in Christ until the crisis moment comes and you find out that you might be Lee a little faith and God has to take you through something in order to increase that segment of your faith. That's what he does. He takes us through situations, trials, and tribulations to refine us, to build us up, to increase our faith. It's the same with God's Word. We say we believe God's Word, right? But do we believe what His Word says? Have you ever had doubts as to its accuracy, given its age? Its inerrancy, meaning without error, given how it's been handed down and translated over thousands of years? How about to its promises? Do you believe those promises are for you? Remember we talked about all the promises? I think there's 3,500. One person said there's like 7,500 promises in the Word of God. Do you believe that those promises are for you? Every one of them? How about its power? I was talking to a fellow brother in Christ, and I was telling him to share a segment of Scripture with somebody that he was dealing with in his life. And I said, there is power in the Word. It's just not a book. It's living. It's life. So it's unlike any other book that you would ever read. You know, since being a Christian, I've ran across agnostics, I've ran across atheists, I've ran across humanists, I've ran across heathens, I've ran across spiritualists, and I even ran across a couple of Wiccas for good measure. Now, in each belief system, they all have their own reservation as it relates to God's Word and to the Christian faith. Some call it a fantasy. Others, historical stories and narratives. That's all the Bible is. Some people believe it's a con to keep the gullible, the susceptible, to be in line. Some people believe that Jesus was nothing more than a teacher, a rabbi, and the Bible is nothing more than just a brief account of his time on earth, even if he ever existed. And so people that don't believe or don't have a belief in Jesus Christ and are not Christians, they're critical of the Word of God. I get that. I understand that. But when I hear a Christian say the same things, it breaks my heart. Because they don't have trust in their faith. They don't have trust in God's Word. And I would almost venture to say, because I've ran into a person who professes to be a Christian, who doesn't have confidence in God's words, inerrancy or its power. I question the validity of that faith. Or it's never been developed. It's never been shown. This morning, again, we talk about this in Sunday school class, and I mentioned it in my previous sermons. Right here out of 2 Peter, you need to know Jesus. Not just academically. Not just statistically. Not just historically. But you need to know Him through the Holy Spirit. And so my brother in Christ who doesn't believe in the inerrancy, the accuracy, or the power of the Word of God, I pray is just a faith that hasn't been fully developed. And so given that, Peter this morning gives us three proofs to allow us to be certain of God's Word. 
to take confidence in its full measure, in its full weight, and its full capability. And the first one we see is in verse 16. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Eyewitnesses. And that's the first proof that we can trust God's Word is the eyewitnesses that wrote, that taught, that proclaimed that Jesus is who He said He was, the Christ. And Peter begins verse 16 by stating his confidence comes from the fact of his eyewitness accounts and not from the world. He didn't develop this from how the world developed stories and legends, but through his own personal eyewitness account. And the greatest validator to the things of God which are true as it relates to Jesus Christ is the eyewitness accounts that tell of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. You know, one of the greatest elements to any event in history are the eyewitness accounts of those who were there. Each time a significant event occurs, books and articles are written about the events, and the credibility of the telling of what happened comes from firsthand eyewitnesses. Those who can describe all the details necessary to capture the event accurately. You yourself may have been called upon to witness to a situation, provide a statement, provide a testimony, go to court because you witnessed something such as a crime or an accident. And your testimony is going to be used to determine whether the events as reported occurred the way they were reported. The validity. The more witnesses there are, the more confidence we have in understanding and believing what has happened is true. That makes sense. So how many witnesses were there that could attest to Christ's ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension? How many do you think? Well, let's look and see what Paul says about that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he says this, For I delivered to you as the first important of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to see... Notice how He keeps pointing back to Scriptures. We'll get to that in a minute. Then He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. Very important point to Paul's writing. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. And then Paul concludes, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul, who was not there, writes about who was there between the time of Christ's resurrection, which is really the context of what he's talking about, the resurrection of Christ, until the time of his ascension, which we know was 40 days, he appeared to 500.
hundred people. That's a lot of witnesses. And we're not talking about a light in the sky or a black blob in a tree line or some creature crossing a, you know, a creek bed in Northern California. We're not talking about something that can be misinterpreted like a satellite or some other kind of light like an aircraft. The risen Christ interacted with these witnesses. He taught those witnesses. He ate with those witnesses. That's credibility. They talked with him. They seen him. They seen the wounds in his hands. They ate fish on a beach. And Paul said that most of them are still alive. And that's really important as it relates to myths. The word that Peter uses in the scripture. Myths take time to become myths. Before they become folklore or legends. And we know that myths, legends, and folklore are based a little bit on truth, but then over time, through the oral tradition of telling the story, they become a little bit more exaggerated, a few more fantastic details are added, and the next thing you know, we have what we have today in legends and myths. In fact, literary scholars, secular literary scholars, said there was insufficient time between Christ's death and the dating of the New Testament letters to form a myth because of the eyewitness accounts that would disprove any exaggeration or any false statements or lessening of what really happened. You know, I work with a guy who leans heavily left politically. And I say that for this reason, because he was having a conversation with our office assistant one time. And as they were talking, my coworker told the office assistant that he was reading a book that disproved that Vietnam veterans were not spat on when they returned home from service. I don't know where this guy gets his source material, but the author of the book says, that's a fallacy, it's a farce. In fact, I remember the book, it's not very supportive of the U.S. military. But little did my coworker know that the husband of my coworker, the office assistant he was telling this to, was in fact a Vietnam veteran and was in fact spat on when he returned from his service. He had no answer to that when she told him that. You see, myths cannot withstand actual evidence and personal accounts closely related to the time of the event. It's true with events today, and it's also true with biblical events that we have today. And the Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all reveal the witness of Christ's ministry, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension. And one of the greatest statements that speaks about this lies at the very introduction of Luke. And it's a powerful statement. Some say it's the best written statement in, in Greek literature, and it comes out of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. Inasmuch, did I put, no, I didn't put that up there. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, 
past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You see, Luke is a historian, and he was a great historian. Some say one of the best at his time. But Luke didn't see what Matthew seen. He didn't see what John seen. But he was a disciple of those who had seen and took great confidence in their testimony. And that's what he introduces his gospel message to. That it's based on credible, accurate accounts of eyewitnesses. So you can take confidence in what is being said. See, Luke set the stage on how his letter was to be authenticated if it was ever criticized because of the witnesses. You know, this letter would have been branded heresy, false teaching, if Luke would have wrote, which was not accurate, given how many witnesses were still alive. It would have been challenged, it would have been discounted, and it would never have been shared within the churches as authorized literature. It wouldn't have been canonized, meaning it wouldn't have been included in the Bible. So what about us? We didn't see Jesus in the flesh. We don't see His miracles. We did not see His death, resurrection, and ascension. Where does that lead us as it relates to trusting the eyewitness accounts? Well, it leaves us in the same precious position as Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote. We have been given a great written account. Not just of Luke and his work in Acts, but also Matthew, also Mark, also John, and all of the epistles written by the disciples that hold to a consistent line of evidence as witnessed by them that is overwhelming. It should give us great confidence. It is written like, a, like an affidavit. If anybody understands what an affidavit is, it's a sworn deposition. It's a personal written statement that somebody says, what I have written is truthful and honest to the best of my ability. I deal with them every day. And I tell them, after they sign the affidavit, after they write the statement, I say, now, I'm going to put you under oath. If anything that you put in this affidavit, anything you put in this statement, anything that you put in this testimony is false, you will be held liable for it. Now, we're talking a legal aspect. This is a written affidavit. This is a written statement that has been authenticated by credibility and the witnesses that were provided. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you eternal life which was the Father and who was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That was from Paul. To the church in Thessalonica. Continuously talking about the credibility God's Word. And so that's the first proof. The second proof is found in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more carefully confirmed, 
more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to the lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The second great proof that gives us confidence in God's Word is the prophetic Word of God that gives us certainty in God's promises and the Word as being accurate as is foretold from Old Testament prophecies. You know, when one doubts the validity of Jesus Christ being the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Christ, they must do so against historical, accurate information and evidence that is astounding. You won't hear that from the secular world, but they can't refute it either. In an excellent apologetics book entitled Confidence in Christ, Mike Bradfield, who was an engineer, if you're familiar with Lee Strobel, he was a lawyer who went out to disprove Jesus as to who he was, utilizing his, his field of expertise, which is being a lawyer and looking at all the evidence, basically put Christ on trial, which led to him coming to Christ, writing the book, A Case for Christ. Well, this individual, Mike Bradfield, is an engineer. And so he used his expertise to determine from engineering aspects whether what we can believe in the Word of God is true. Now in here, he identifies 300, now just with Christ, 353 prophecies concerning Jesus. Not concerning Israel, not concerning a host of other prophecies that we have, but 353 prophecies concerning Christ. I'm just going to hit a few highlights. I'm not going to read all 353. Here's one. He would be from the line of Abraham. That came out of Genesis. And Paul wrote in Romans, Galatians, the fact that he did. He would be from the tribe of Judah. That was predicted in Genesis 4, 49-10. And the writers of Hebrews and John the Revelator spoke of Jesus being from the tribe of Judah. He would come from Bethlehem. Now that's a little harder one because that's a really small town. That was first prophesied in Micah 5-2. Well, we know the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus, in fact, came from Bethlehem. That he would be born from a virgin, and his name would mean God with us, Emmanuel. Okay, that came out of Isaiah 7, 14. And it's reported as accurate in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, you could probably discount that, oh, was she really? Okay, but can you discount the fact that he was named? Jesus. That's a hard one to dismiss. That he would be from the house of David, 2 Samuel, proven to be true, Luke chapter 1. That he would be worshipped by wise men and presented with gifts, Psalm 72.10, Isaiah chapter 60. What? Through the birth account through Luke, proven to be true. He would be in, the, he would be in Egypt for a season, Numbers 24.8. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, 15 talks about that and proves that. His birthplace would suffer a massacre of infants. Jeremiah 31, verse 1, as reported in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. And so there's several more like this, and I'm, for the sake of time, I'm going to just kind of put those to the side. It's an excellent book. If you ever wanted to read it, I can certainly borrow it to you. It's a great apologetics book that comes from, like I said, the engineering aspect. But what he was showing us is all of the prophecies related to Jesus 
that were predicted thousands of years before they actually occurred, and now the epistles and the gospels write to the fact that they were fulfilled. Now, when we look at mathematics of probability, we can see that we can calculate odds for just about everything, right? For instance, we could say you're going to be hit by lightning, one in 700,000. Now, if you're holding a steel rod in the middle of a field of electrical storm, those odds are going to go up a little bit, right? I was fishing one day, and I was telling Jen and Todd this, and Jen couldn't believe this, but I was fishing in a tournament one day, and we were using carbon rods, and it was overcast. You could just feel the electricity in the air, and all of a sudden, the tip of my rod started humming, and I could see a blue line, right? Like you see in science experiments, like in Frankenstein's lab or whatever, and I'm like, and I'm holding it, and I'm going, what's that? And my fishing partner, who has been fishing with carbon rods a lot longer than I have, he looks over and goes, what's what? I said, what's that blue light at the end? He goes, drop your rod. What? I don't have a, drop your, I dropped my rod. He said, get a fiberglass one. There's, a, there's electrical current. And it's, you're a conductor, and I don't want my boat to get struck by lightning. I'm glad he was worried about me. But nonetheless, the odds of that happening increase when you're not smart. How about being killed by lightning? One in two million. Again, those odds go up if you're holding something metal. A meteorite landing on your house. I don't know how they, why did they even come up with this one? But one in 180 trillion, right? Yeah, you don't bet on those odds. How about dying? That's a little bit more predictable. That's one of one, right? But we can also do this as it relates to the prophecies as to their the odds of them happening. For instance, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, 1 in 280,000. How about being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, 1 in 100,000? How about Christ being crucified, 1 in 10,000? Now, what is the standard for a prophet to be considered a prophet? 100% all the time. If you claim something a hundred times and you miss it by one, you're a false prophet. Or the prophecy is false. Not really close prophet. Not a 99% prophet. Not a really good prophet. You know, a lot of people put their faith in Nostradamus. And he has been wrong several times. And yet they continuously go back and say, oh, Nostradamus said this. How about something a little bit more accurate? 100% of the time. Not one prophecy has been missed. Not one. That's why I don't like weathermen. They're wrong 50% of the time and they still have a job. Fourth of July, told, horrible weather, scattered thunderstorms, gonna be nasty, just stay home. I did. And it was a beautiful day. Should have went fishing. I wrote a letter to the weatherman, but anyway. Now, how many prophecies of the 353 prophecies were fulfilled by Christ? All of them, 100% of them. How do we know? Well, most prophecies were written in the Old Testament over 1,000 years ago to their fulfillment, and the New Testament shows their fulfillment. Now, some would say, given the fact that the disciples who, wrote, who had the Old Testament write the scrolls and the Scriptures, and they wrote the New Testament, could have easily just, you know, made sure that their writing showed that those Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled. But there's one problem with that. And the problem is second-hand witnesses. Those who've seen Christ ride on a donkey or his trial where he remains silent before Pontius Pilate. 
You see, those would be critics of the disciples writing in their letters, tweaking them to show that these prophecies were fulfilled. Because if they weren't, second-hand witnesses would have stood up and said, that's not right, that's not true, that's not accurate. In fact, there was additionally outside events out of the control of the disciples that they couldn't possibly control, such as Jesus being executed or crucified between two thieves, as foretold in Isaiah 53, 12. Now, how would they have managed that? They couldn't. And so of the 353 prophecies, all of them concerning Christ were true. Brothers and sisters, what this is telling me that not only can we trust the eyewitness accounts of those that were there, but we can trust the prophetic message of God's Word. And that's why Peter says we have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed, confirmed by the fulfillment of prophecies. But Peter further admonishes us that we need to give attention to them as a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, what does Peter mean by this? is within the fallen world which is dark with sin, the prophetic word of God stands alone as the light of truth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not, nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Therefore, this admonishment from Peter to the churches is our admonishment and encouragement as well. We too must hold to the prophetic word and trust its validity, its accuracy, its power, its truth. Because it's the only truth that exists in this world, in a world of darkness. It was the truth, the light of the gospel that ignited your faith for you to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and overcome the darkness in your life. But Peter places a caveat on it to ensure that what he is saying and what the Word of God is proclaiming is not twisted by false teachers. Remember, one of the primary reasons Peter is writing this epistle so soon after his first one is he has a concern of false teachers coming into the church, teaching a false doctrine such as Christ is not coming again. Where's the resurrection? You said He was coming. He's not here. Therefore, can we believe the ascension? These were the false teachings already creeping into the church, a new church. And so Peter wants to make sure that they understand that in order to understand God's Word, you need to interpret it correctly. You know, Eric, I have a friend, Eric, who's a fellow pastor here in town. He had recent conversation with a person who started visiting his church. And in speaking with him, he said that uh, God told him that it was okay to smoke pot and that he found Scripture to justify it. Eric sat down with him and lovingly corrected him and showing him that he was twisting Scripture to meet the need of what he wanted for it to say. You know, although we're encouraged to read and study our Bible, it's important that we properly interpret what we're reading and understanding in its proper context. One of the best resources I could recommend to ensure this is how to read the Bible for all of its worth. It's a book that I gave to young Jason as he's looking into um, becoming, you know, a preacher of the Word of God. And at the very beginning of the book, in an introductory phrase, it says, the aim of a good interpretation is simple, 
to make plain meaning of the text. In other words, the Scripture does not say what you want it to say, but what it says on its own. You heard me say this several times now, that there's a difference between reading the Word of God from an eisegetical manner, meaning reading into it what you want it to, versus an exegetical, which is to read it as from what it is saying. It stands on its own. And this is hugely important because when Scripture is taken out of context and misapplied, it can justify all kinds of sinful behaviors. And so proper interpretation of the reading of Scripture is immensely important. And we have to be taught on how to do it as part of our discipleship. It's something you have to learn. When I was first uh, given the opportunity to preach God's Word, I was given several resources I never even knew existed before so that I could look up exactly what those words mean in the Greek, in the Hebrew. Because sometimes the English words that we're provided in a translation that we have mean something to us, but it's different and how it's being used in the Greek. And so it's important that we understand the context by which those verses are being used and then apply them correctly. For instance, this morning we talked about Matthew 6.24. You cannot serve God and money. I'm paraphrasing the verse. Some people take that to mean you should have no money. You should be living in poverty. That's a misapplication of that verse. Others say that, no, I can store up treasures in heaven. God giving me a blessing. This gospel is all about me getting my share. Prosperity gospel. Again, taking that scripture out of context to fit it what you want it to mean. Matthew 6, 24 means what it means. It's that you can't serve money and serve God with a pure heart. Because you're going to show one more than the other. It's not bad to have money. It should just never be your God. And so we can see how that can be twisted and and, and so forth. And we, we need to make sure that we're properly interpreting the Word of God. And you can be taught to do that. But then he goes on to verse 21 and he gives us the third proof that we can have confidence in God's Word. And that proof is the Holy Spirit in our lives gives us confidence in God's Word. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Herein lies the proof that gives us confidence in God's Word, the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that wooed you unto Christ, ignited your faith to believe, and filled you upon believing in your faith in Jesus Christ, is now transforming your life in Christ, is the same Holy Spirit that carried the Word of God through the authors of the Word of God. He's the same person who inspired them to write what they wrote and to pen what they penned. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That means source. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from men. It came from God. It was the Holy Spirit who provided the prophetic word to the prophets. And it is the Holy Spirit who carried the word to the New Testament authors. Because of this, we have a consistent theme that runs through the word of God. A linear connection that maintains itself over thousands of years. Now, some would say that, that man wrote the Bible. Therefore, as some critics would hold, because we're prone to error, there's got to be errors in the Word of God. We can't fully trust it. Now, that's certainly logical. It's even understandable. 
and maybe even rational, but what they fail to realize, and cannot because it is spiritually discerned, as Paul would say, is that the Holy Spirit superintended and moved within the human writers of the Word of God. Now, what does that superintendent mean? It means responsible for the management, the arrangement, and the activity. He was the author. He spoke through the writers. In fact, Peter uses the term carried along, and that's a maritime term that means like a ship itself does not move by itself. A sail ship does not move by itself. It needs wind to feel the sails to move the ship. And when we look at God's Word, we should never look at the vessel as to the power, man, but to the wind that moved it, the Holy Spirit. The prophetic Word of God is not a human words divinely blessed. Understand that. Paul didn't write his letter and say, Lord, bless that which now I have written for you. Mm -mm, That's not how that worked. It's not human accounts of things that have happened and anointed by the Holy Spirit, like Luke saying, Lord, I'm done with my works. I'm done with the gospel. I'm done with with the book of Acts, so I need you to anoint this as a holy book. That's not how that worked. Every word given unto men was inspired by the Holy Spirit and not man. If it were not so, now listen to this, if this is not so, God's word could not be trusted because if it came by way of man and was simply blessed or anointed, it did not derive from God himself. It would be a contradiction of Scripture that we just read. And see, a lot, that's where my friend who says he's a Christian gets tripped up. He sees man. He doesn't see God in the working of his word. But we have confidence that he did derive it from God himself through the Holy Spirit, from Genesis to Revelation. And to give you proof of this, there's one theme that runs consistently through the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Through the inspired writings of 35 authors, 66 books, and over 1,500 years of compilation to what we have today. And the theme that runs consistently through them all is the theme of redemption by way of Christ. Now think about how hard it would be for merely, from a merely human exercise and authors who wrote each book to somehow have knowledge of the other writings when some of them were not available at the time that they wrote to maintain that consistent theme through 1,500 years. It's improbable. The only way that could have happened is for the Holy Spirit to inspire what they wrote. So here's the challenge. It's a big one. If we fail to recognize, believe, trust, and the Holy Spirit carried the words we have contained in our Bible this morning, then we must logically deduce, therefore, question our very own salvation. For the power that brought you to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word is the same power that authored, carried, and empowered His Word to be written. If we believe in the divine nature within us, we must also believe in the divine word. If we believe in our eternal inheritance, then we must believe that the word promises it. That it's just not a book. It's just not history. It's just not full of stories. It is just not poetry or narratives combined. 
It is the living Word of God that is power and life by way of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you have heard from us, you accept it not as the Word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, the believers. No book can do that. You know, you could go buy a self-help book, but it's only going to last as long as your interest is focused on it. But I remember a promise in God's Word that He said He will finish what He started. That's a promise in His Word. And we know His promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And you can count on them 100% of the time. So brothers and sisters, now that we've examined these scriptures and as Paul encourages the churches to trust and believe in what is being written, what is being taught, he gives us three proofs. The first one is the eyewitness accounts that cannot be discounted. 500. That's a lot. The prophetic word of God. 100% accurate. 100% fulfilled. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that saved you and me by the power of Christ is the same Holy Spirit that empowered His Word. I think by understanding what Peter is saying this morning, we can have great confidence in God's Word. But it takes us to know it. It takes us to write it on our hearts. It takes us to live it and be empowered by it. That's our challenge this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it empowers us. Thank you that it brings life. Thank you, Father God, that it is a living word, active. And thank you, Father, that it is your son, Jesus Christ, who is the word that was made flesh. So, Father, give us 100% full confidence in your word today. Give us that confidence and faith that we can trust this over anything else. For not only did it bring us unto salvation, but it continues to work out that salvation in us by the same power, the word of power that led us to you is the same word of power that continuously leads us to become like you. And so, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.